So last week we were in Luke 15, the entire chapter. Today, four verses from chapter 17. Just buckle up. It's kind of changing gears. Let us read these first four verses in chapter 17. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is the word of the Lord to his disciples whom we are by His grace. Amen. So I necessarily want to connect some dots from last week because in the next two weeks, we are going to be in two encounters with Jesus with two different men. We're going to see Jesus encounter the rich young ruler next week, and then the following week, we will see Him encounter um, Zacchaeus. Um, But this week and last week, we want to connect the dots of repentance and the nature of repentance in our church community. Last week we began in verse 15 or verse 1 of chapter 15 now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them so he told them this parable first of all we see the company that Jesus keeps he's with both sinners and tax collectors but also Pharisees and scribes are there he's working in different social circles um, calling all to repentance And for the teaching there with a larger group, he taught parables, story pictures, stories that had lessons. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. The question, will they understand these stories? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. These are very parallel in the way that they're structured. Something is lost. A shepherd has a hundred sheep and he comes to count and he's missing one. A woman has 10 silver coins. She counts them at the end of the day, and she's missing one. Something is lost, and so becomes a diligent searcher. The shepherd goes to look for the lost sheep. The woman goes to look for the lost coin. When they are found, there is great celebration. The calling together of family and friends, um, neighbors to rejoice. And the lesson is, just so I tell you. In each of those parables of last week, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is a joy over one who repents. So being found is evidenced with repentance. And repentance brings joy. Last week we considered that sometimes we will have negative connotations of repentance. We think it's a negative judgmentalism, just beat us down, where repentance comes through the kindness of God that leads us to it. It's a grace that we are to embrace in our lives. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was recorded by Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the very first command is repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance, and I was talking to someone last week, sometimes we just think of repentance being this negative extraction. Where better thought, is a, it's a positive displacement. So for my science teacher there, it's a, you put your, it's a pouring in so that the negative is actually displaced. 
It's a turning of our mind. It's a switch of our soul. We don't love sin anymore. We hate it. We don't, are not just dismissive of God, but we delight in God. We are not walking around with pride, but we're walking with humility before others. If we repent, we're no longer trying to save our face, but we're actually seeking forgiveness. We're not having to be right, we're having to make things right. Loving the world no longer, but seeking first the kingdom of God. Not trusting in ourselves, but believing in Christ Jesus. This is not a one-time event, it's the continual life of a disciple. And in trying to have a conversation with the medieval church, Martin Luther put 95 talking points on a church one day, and the first one read this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers that this be one of repentance. That statement is now 503 years old. Repentance is a lifestyle, not a singular event. So apart from Jesus, we are lost. We need to be found by Jesus. And if we are found by Jesus, there is joy in repentance. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. But when we repent and come to saving faith in Jesus, there is joy in heaven. There's joy in those who've shared this good news. There is joy in our soul because we're no longer enslaved to sin. This is salvation. But these parables also taught us that if we are found, we're also now to become the diligent searchers in the mission of God. So if we are found by Jesus, we go share the gospel with the lost. Because people are valuable, created in the image of God. And with this good news of God, we go to souls that have eternal destiny to share how they can be saved. Forgiven by God, reconciled to God. And there is joy to see others come to saving faith. When you came to saving faith, those who had labored in prayer for you, those who had shared the good news to you in boldness, there was joy in their hearts. Have you had the joy? And there's joy down at the river when there's public baptism just to see someone come to faith and profess it publicly. Those are the first two parables of Luke 15. I want to continue to connect the dots here to 17. But the third parable was this, the parable of the lost sons. A father who has an estate who loves both of his sons. The younger son has plans. Father, give me my part of the inheritance. Tired of just being bound up here at home. So he grabs his part and then goes and squanders it all in reckless living. Prostitutes and the like. Becomes so down on his luck, has to then go work on a farm and feed pigs and almost envy what the pigs ate and realize that the servants of his father had it better back home. And so the younger son needs to come to the point of repenting of his worldliness and his irreligion. But there's also another lost son in this parable. It's not just one prodigal son. There's one who went away, but there's one who's there who also needs to repent. The older son who's diligent, dutiful, takes the responsibilities of family and home and work and is going to work into this. But then when his younger brother comes home, there's a big party. We kill a fattened calf. There's a robe on him. There's a ring. They're just celebrating because there's joy in repentance. That older brother could just cross his arms in indignation, not want to go into the party. Realize, Father, you didn't give me a young goat for my friends. And this is a lost son because he's lost in his self-righteousness and his religion. 
and Pharisees and scribes, are you hearing this? Jesus is wondering. I'm telling this story to you, Pharisees and scribes. Are you seeing this? Last week we asked, are we more like the younger son or the older son? And the very truth of it is that we are both in different ways, in different measures, in different life seasons. We are both worldly and we are both self-righteous. And it's time to repent and come home. It's time to get inside and enjoy the party. And so loved by God, we can now extend this grace to others. We considered last week. Yes, we are like the younger son who need to repent of our worldliness. Yes, we are like the older son who need to repent of our religion and self-righteousness. But there are times we need to grow up into him who is the head. And in our maturity, it's time to become spiritual fathers and mothers who can then love others with such a grace to welcome them home. To see repentant sinners come home. And so are we maturing in the faith so that we can so disciple others? This is where we were last week in these three parables. And repentance brings joy. This is the, the audience last week. It was Pharisees and scribes, and there were tax collectors and sinners, sinners there. It was just a crowd of people, and he taught parables. Chapter 17, we turn, and we're with disciples. And it's just these quick little vignettes of words of wisdom, words of instruction. And he said to his disciples, chapter 17, verse 1, Verses 1 through 3, we will look to the temptation to sin. Verses 3 and 4, we will look at the forgiveness of sin. And the hinge point that is there in both, pay attention to yourselves. Come with me to verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. But first of all, let me just ask this word. Let's not just use church words. What, is, what do we mean when we say temptation? What does it mean to be tempted? Temptations come when we are enticed to sin. And I really hate the dictionary, you know, because I went to the dictionary. And I'm like, right, let me just kind of like, how does the dictionary define this? Derek, did you just say you hate the dictionary? Yeah. Because I go to the dictionary and it says, what is Temptation. The act of being tempted. I'm like, you can't use the word in your definition. Like, use different words to define the word. And then I'm like, click over to, what does it mean to tempt? Well, to have temptation. I'm like, I'm in a circle here, and you're not defining it. So I wrote my own definition. The, the state of being enticed to sin and evil which then also are two more church words. So let me define what is sin and evil. It is the transgressing, the crossing, the violating of the character and commands of God. See, do not make Christianity just a religion of do's and don'ts. It is sin and evil against the character and commands of God. Let me use one example. The temptation to lie, to make untrue statements with the intent to deceive, to present ourselves with the intent to deceive. We think of lie as just a false statement, but there's so much in our lying. We can exaggerate the truth. We can share a half-truth. We can omit the truth. We can claim truth, but deny it with our lifestyle, hypocrisy. You can 
give a commitment and then renege on that, that is lying. See, do not lie or do not bear false witness is not just making false statements. It is so much in our lifestyle. And it is against the character of God. Numbers 23. God is not man that he should lie. Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. That is the character of God. And the command of God is even seen many places. Exodus 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Colossians 3. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. How are you most tempted to lie? We, we lie when we want to protect ourselves, preserve ourselves, project a different image, to avoid consequence. The temptation is sure to come, Jesus says. And do not be surprised by it. It's common to all of us. In this fallen world, Genesis 3. Have the lady, if you guys are past Genesis 3 at this point, you going past Genesis 3? Not yet. Too much in 1 2. Too much. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Any tree of the garden? And so Adam and Eve there sinned against God, against the command of God, and so welcomed sin, death, and evil into this world so that even now when we are conceived, we have a sin nature. When we are born into this world, we are, have a sin nature. We are not like perfect human beings with the potential to not sin. We are conceived and are born and will sin, save one. We'll get to him. Temptation to sin is common to all. So don't think that you're alone. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he should, that stands heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When temptation comes beyond your ability, He will provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. So you know one thing the Bible never tells us? Which is a dumb thing that we say to each other? Well, God will never be giving you more than you can handle. Like, walk a mile in my shoes. I almost didn't make it through that life season. You're trying to tell you, where, where is that chapter and verse, Derek? God will never give you more than you can handle. Suffering in this fallen world is more than we can handle. And the temptation is not uncommon, but it is overwhelming. And God will provide the way of escape. If, he didn't, if we didn't have more than we can handle, then we can just rely on ourselves. But when we get overwhelmed with more than we can handle... Then we cry out for God's grace and God's mercy, God's sustaining um, faith in us. Temptation is not a sin. Please hear that. Jesus himself was tempted, yet did not sin. 
Temptation is not a sin. It is not sinful to think or feel temptations to sin. It is sinful to act on it. Now, I realize it is a very fine line because we will give in to that temptation just in our thought life. And so there's, we're sinning in our thoughts. We're sinning with our actions. It's not just what we do. It's what we say. It's what we think. But to have the temptation, it's not a sin. Genesis 4. Not to get ahead of you guys, but here we are. Genesis 4. The Lord said to Cain, there were two brothers, to even Adam and Eve, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here we are in Early on in human history, and there's two brothers, and they bring an offerings to the Lord out of their work. And Abel brings an offering, and it's accepted to the Lord. Cain brings an offering, and it's not acceptable in the Lord's eyes. And Cain gets bitter, angry, envious. And the Lord comes to him saying, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Temptation is the door to sin. And there is Cain, angry with the Lord, jealous and bitter at his brother, and there's the door, and right on the other side is sin, just crouching like a lion, right, a pouncing. The temptation, that the first initial feelings, are that's the temptation. But when you open the door, that's when we sin. And he opened the door, murdering his brother in cold blood. Jealous rage. Temptation is not a sin, and God does not tempt us to evil. James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And seed, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation is driven by desire. Desire, when that door opens, goes to sin, and sin will bring death. And that comes from within our flesh desires, from our sin nature. It comes from the world with enticements from without. And it comes from the spiritual realm with demonic temptations. And so Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He knows that his disciples need to pray that. What sin is crouching at the door of your heart, your life this day? Now, you may, you may just think there's this one huge door in your life right now, and there's a particular sin that's crouching ready to pounce on you. But some of you feel like you're in the fun house, and there's doors all around, and you feel like there's everything coming from all sides. The flesh, the world, the devil. Well, pay attention to yourselves. Jesus tells his disciples here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, Paul would tell Timothy. Peter would write to the, the dispersion. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. This is a roaring lion, and yet we have our favorite pet sins, and we think that we can domesticate them, that we can hold them on a leash. 
that we can just enjoy and take them for a walk and still enjoy their companionship and they will not pounce on us. The devil is looking to devour you. You may not be overtaken with grievous sin and public sin. Your demise, our demise, may just come in good, respectable living. Oh, occasionally we will see the, the spectacular sin. Of, we'll see abuse hit the headlines. Apostasy, that church leader renounced the faith. We'll see embezzlement. We'll see extortion. Usually our power, sex, or money, these big public sins. But more common is the temptation to respectable sins. Where's Rosemary? I was in my sermon writing process, and you're asking on Realm about that book? I was like, what in the world, Lord? Jerry Bridges will tell you about the respectable sin of anxiety and discontentment and unthankfulness. Pride. That's a very respectable sin. That's actually a quality that some of you guys are wanting to hire people with. Just this goat selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, envy and jealousy, gossip and worldliness. These are just, we can have a, a, a slow demise just with good, respectable sins. Some of you gathered last night around good food from what I saw and talked about the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis. A dialogue between a, a senior demon screw tape to a, a junior demon wormwood. Here's just a few quotes. Probably you've got your favorites. A moderated religion is as good to us as no religion at all. Actually, more amusing. So, demonic temptings to us is not to just renounce the faith, it's to moderate the faith, moderate our religion. And so, you have my musings on the moderation of the church in this day by the social justice movement. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly reliable people. They're steady and consistent scoffers and worldlings who without any spectacular crimes are progressing quietly and comfortably toward our Father's house, being Satan himself. The the conversation continues. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Temptation is the door to the sin, But woe to us if we become that door and we cause others to sin. If we tempt others to sin and so cause them to fall. The reference here to little ones is not just children, like biological or little people. I mean, just young of age. It's little ones. Now, we can picture this in our homes because coming to homes of a young family and you'll see little ones, toddlers and infants and children and teens, And when they start to say what you say and do what you do, what you're really wanting to preach to them to not do as you say and do, they're watching. How are we tempting? Little ones here would be 
those who are infants in Christ that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. The little ones here are those who are weak in the faith in Romans 14. We should pay attention to our life and to our teaching so that we cause no one to stumble. And what does Jesus say here in this teaching to his disciples? It would be better to be drowned in the ocean with a millstone than to face the judgment of causing others to sin. I mean, that's like mafia-like. That's like Hudson River just get tossed over and you just sink to the bottom and you're no longer heard from until they do a river sweep. I mean, if you cause another one to sin, it'd be better if the, the thing that was caused to, like, to grind the, the flour in the mill there, just this boulder that would be carried around by a donkey just to grind. If that was wrapped around your neck and you just tossed over a boat, it'd be better that that happened to you than if you caused others to sin. Some of us can't tread water with our own body weight, much less having a boulder hung around our neck. So how do we tempt others to sin? We should hear this word and take it, because this is to disciples. Number one, by false teaching, if we distort God's word, not just not different interpretations for debate and discussion and, and Christendom and the orthodoxy there the, of that umbrella. I'm talking about distorting it so that it violates the presentation of who God is and the good gospel of his Lord Jesus Christ. False teaching will cause others to sin. Escalating strife. If we cause others to sin because of our sin, oh, you're going to sin against me? Well, I'm going to sin back against you. And we just keep escalating in that? We're not being wise disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have a hypocritical witness, if we claim faith here on this Sunday and tomorrow on a Monday we live a completely different lifestyle, it's going to confuse those who are infants in Christ, who are immature in faith, and it's going to cause them maybe to be tempted to sin. If we ourselves are indulging in the world, not eating and drinking and enjoying the good gifts of God to His glory, but if we're in worldly indulgence, Dismissing and justifying sin, and it's going to invite others to sin as well. If we're silently coward, cowardly, if we don't speak the truth in love, but give seemingly permission and endorsement to sin with our silence, that will cause others to be tempted to sin. If we are unlovingly selfish, well, I have Christian liberty to do this, but is it wise with this relationship and in this, at this time? Why have Christian liberty? Yes, but, but we're a slave to Christ and it would be better to serve one another for their sake than just to live into our own liberty, which is actually just unloving selfishness. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in them, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Holy Spirit, would you give us sober judgment of our lives? And are there ways that we are tempting others to sin? that we have not seen yet. Holy Spirit, would you grant us the kindness by your, the Father, our Father, to lead us into repentance. Don't feel condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. But if there's things we just got to mature up in so that we can better love one another, there's actually for joy because with repentance comes joy. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. 
If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Temptation to sin. But what about forgiveness to sin? There are few Christian duties which the New Testament dwells on so frequently on as forgiving other people. It's prominent in the Lord's Prayer. It's the only thing we're commanded to actually do in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are called to forgive others because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The themes continue on. I, there's so many I could... Colossians 3, bear with one another, and if you have a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But Derek, I don't like this particular verse here to these disciples. It says rebuke. So let's talk about that. What does it actually mean to live into this rebuking of sin? Let me say what it is not. It does not empower us to become the holiness police. This does not say that you get to be like put a badge on and Barney fife it out and like now go around and rebuke everybody with your silver bullet and just you get to like clean up everybody else. Clean up this town. This is not the holiness police. This is a family, a community of Jesus' disciples committed to holy living in response to God's grace. How else would we live with such grace to us? Faith is not a private affair. It's a communal commitment. And so there must be rebuking of sin. This is how one scholar writes. The community of believers is a family in the sense that the best interest of each member is a concern of each other member. Thus, the call to the rebuke is the exercise of a familiar responsibility. The assumption in all of this is that disciples have a certain quality in their relationships that allows this type of positive, honest, loving, confronting behavior to occur without destroying their relationships. Better said than done. Do we really have the love and trust in our church to obey these verses? To confront sin? It's just a lot easier to just live and let live. And then maybe try to rub off on each other and passive osmosis. But do we want to really grow into him who's the head by speaking the truth in love? I've gotten gunshot on this one. Some of you have been in meetings with me. Like we go and plead with someone else, and they've left the church in offense. And so I'm just like, did I say that right? Should we have done that? Should there have been like and you try to be so tender-hearted, gentle. So if we're going to obey God's word, how do we actually live into rebuking of sin? Let me just some practical things that the Lord, the scriptures would teach us in different places. As able, do not keep an account of minor trespasses. We don't need to make everything a thing. It's not loving to go around trying to get every, all the specks out of everybody else's eye when we've got lumber in ours. Like, it's a big log in ours. There, there's things that are minor that can be overlooked. There's, love covers a multitude of sins, and so it's, 
It's sometimes the most loving thing to not have to go around and think we're the Holy Spirit on every minor detail of everything. But just, and especially if we're not praying before it. Like, don't go confront sin and rebuke sin if, it's not, if you've not labored in prayer over it. If we've, if we've not been laboring in prayer, but we're ready to jump out in front of the Holy Spirit by being the Holy Spirit, it won't be loving. If it's minor things, trust the Holy Spirit to work. But with sin pattern and with serious offense, it needs to be brought to the person's attention. And we need to confront the sin of that other person. We do not demean their personhood. We do not attack personhood. Their person, we're talking about behaviors, actions, effects in life. If it's personally against you, we don't go attack mode against the person we're we're owning our feelings and our observations. We're talking about how we feel hurt or betrayed or unloved. And so there are times in church community where sin has to be confronted. And some of you enjoy it. You're like, yes, for the, ze- for the glory of God, let's get after this one. Some of you are going like, to have pit stains. You're going like, to have panic attacks like, I, you won't sleep the night before. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to have that conversation with that person. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Galatians 6, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So with a sin pattern or serious offense or in the... Even if you have a closer relationship, you can just kind of talk through things. We don't have to make everything a thing, but sometimes it's not as big a thing as we think it is. And just say, man, the way you came across then, is this, this is how I perceived it, I'm praying for it. But what, what are your thoughts? And it can be a real conversation going back. And usually by the end of it, you're hugging, you're praying, you're, it's all a good thing. But it's the times where it doesn't go well that we can become a little hesitant. If the person repents, what are we to do according to Jesus in these verses? Forgive him or her. Once again, I went to the dictionary. What does it mean to forgive? I had to give my own definitions. <laughs> to, to grant pardon, to cancel a debt, to not keep a record of wrongs. I can find that one in 1 Corinthians 13. To no longer hold their sinful words or actions against them. You're not going to be, you don't, we don't, we're human, we don't, over time we may not remember as well, but we don't have the ability to forget, but we are commanded to forgive. And so why is it difficult to forgive someone? Because we want justice. Ah, I felt trespassed, and I want justice for that person, and I, I prefer to actually let them suffer a bit. I, I want to inflict some of that suffering myself. I don't want them to be forgiven. I want, them to, to dwell, I want them to feel it. And so we will not forgive. But the Lord Jesus Christ says if they repent, forgive them. But what if the person's repentance is not genuine? Oh, it's so easy to say, I'm sorry. But what if it's insincere? Jesus says if they repent, you're to forgive him and her. If they do it seven times in a day, forgive them seven times. Seven being a number of continuation, perfection, completion. God forgives us in Christ Jesus so that we are to forgive others when they repent. A 
couple pastoral caveats. What if someone uses repentance as a means of manipulation? This has been some of my most frustrating pastoral work. Dealing with those who twist the Bible to control their loved ones. Uh, I, I hate ugh, the person who says, well, the Bible says you're supposed to forgive me. And they use it as manipulation to control someone. Yeah, and the Bible tells me to extend the right hand of fellowship. I'm sorry if it comes at you with a fist. I'm just so... We are to be forgiven, forgiving, but we are not to be foolish. And these are not verses to empower manipulators. I take the... The verses are right there where they are, but when we get into situations, pastoral work, where it's being used as manipulation and control, I've got other verses. <laughs> what if someone grievously sins and repents? Sometimes there is, and we're learning this more in the larger church world, some sin requires immediate church discipline. It's going to re require the removal of a leader from church office even if there's a heart of repentance. It's just, that's going to be the consequence. Some sin has to be mandatorily reported to the authorities. And there will be legal and criminal consequences to that sin. These are not verses to cover up so that we're in, not in compliance and in obedience to the law of our land. Do we have to forgive someone who does not repent? In the Bible's teaching, and maybe I've misspoken here before, but in my study, in the Bible's teaching, repentance is the prerequisite of forgiveness and reconciliation. My question here, does God forgive us if we don't repent? No. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus said. Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the sermon. They're cut to the heart. When they were cut to the heart, he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. But Derek, Jesus at the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. He was praying forgiveness for them before they even repented. And yes, we're invited to pray for those who have not repented. But it is not imperative, and it would actually be appalling if I were to ask some victim of abuse or rape to forgive an unrepentant perpetrator. There's things that we will live through, and you don't want to be bound up with bitterness and anger. And There's got to be a freedom that comes and ministers and healing to the heart who's been so trespassed against. But I don't want to smather it with church talk to say, well, you've got to forgive them. Repentance, repent and be baptized. Repent, and then there's forgiveness. That's how we work towards reconciliation and restitution. And sometimes that doesn't happen fully in this side of heaven. And all this is really the hard work of being the church together, a family of Jesus' disciples. My questions are to us. Do we really love and trust each other enough to confront sin? And it's just going to be easier to just do the live and let live. Do we really want to love and forgive each other of our sin? 
Or do we love our offenses and our grudges and our bitterness more? So I ask you, how is the Holy Spirit ministering to us today? To you. Do you are you avoiding someone out of fear, fear of rejection? You don't want to talk to someone? You don't want to come across prideful or judgmental, but you need to pray more. Do you need, is there someone you need to have a conversation with that you are grieved in your spirit because it's, it's actually taking the fame away from Jesus and their public witness? It's actually hurting other people that you need to speak up for. Do you need to repent and ask forgiveness from someone else? Do you need to forgive someone else of their sin? And they've forgiven. Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord forgave you. So you must, you must forgive. Last week, we saw that repentance brings joy. Celebrations in heaven, just joy with neighbors and friends. We're going to celebrate. Repentance is a place for joy. It's not like a beat yourself down and make yourself worthy. Repentance is, I am sinning, I'm sinful, and I want to confess it, and I need the grace of God for salvation, and I'm grateful for the love that you extend in that grace. This week, forgiveness of sin is how disciples live together as family. It brings joy, and it makes us family. We repent and are forgiven because of God's love to us in Christ Jesus. This isn't something we just work out in a religion. This is our life together because we have sinned against God. We are not worthy. We are, we are to be cast aside and judged and forsaken by God. Rightfully so because He is holy and just. But He is gracious and merciful and loving and so He sent His beloved Son to live on this earth in truth and grace, sinless, never needing to repent of anything himself because he trespassed neither God his Father nor anyone here on earth. And yet for our salvation took our place. We deserve death. The sinless one died in our place. We deserve judgment. He's forsaken by God so that we can be forgiven of our sin. Do we need to be forgiven of sin? Or are, we just, are we good? Do you believe this good news of salvation? And here's the thing. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Do you love Jesus? Let's pray.